We're back in Jerusalem, which is in the south, in Judea, not in Galilee in the north. But the theme of rejection introduced at the end of chapter 4 is being further developed here in chapter 5 before we see Jesus returning to Galilee and being ultimately rejected there toward the end of chapter 6 and into chapter 7. So even though we're back in Judea in the south, not in Galilee in the north anymore, this is still developing thematically what John has introduced to us at the end of chapter 4, that Jesus is going to be rejected. The prophet has no honor in his hometown. In the passage we're looking at today, John chapter 5, verses 1 to 15, we see conflict increasing between Jesus and the Jews, which is John's way of saying basically the hostile religious crowd. That's the way the Jews is typically used in the Gospel of John, or at least it's a way that it's used often in the Gospel of John. It's not universal. For instance, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. And so Jesus is condoning and participating in a feast of the Jews, which means he's not condoning and participating in the sort of false religion, the sort of anti-Christ sentiment of the hostile religious leaders, clearly. So it's not used universally that way in the Gospel of John, but largely, often, commonly, the Jews means basically the hostile religious crowd and those who support them. And so it's the Jews, ultimately, who will crucify Jesus, though Jesus himself and his disciples are Jews. And so we see in this passage, John chapter 5, verses 1 to 15, conflict increasing between Jesus and those whom John calls the Jews, basically the hostile religious crowd. And we're going to get into that specific conflict more next Sunday, Lord willing. But today we'll focus on the rejection of Jesus by the man who was healed. Let's begin, however, by focusing on the mercy of Jesus. Let's set the scene here. This miracle happens in the context of superstition. I want you to look in your ESV Bibles at verse 4 of John chapter 5. You having trouble finding it? It's because it goes from verse 3 to verse 5, doesn't it? There's a section here, which it seems was not in the original autographs, was not in the original inspired manuscript that John wrote. It's the last half of verse 3 and verse Four, which read like this. Uh, let me begin at let me begin at the beginning of verse three, and I'll read through what the omitted text says. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water, 
Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So this was the belief. It really doesn't, that little sentence doesn't belong in the text of scripture, which is why the ESV has omitted it. And yet it's a helpful explanatory note for us. It shows us that that was the mentality of those who were sitting around the pool. That was what they thought. They thought that an angel of the Lord came down, stirred the water, and the first one in. Some kind of race to be the first one into the pool once it's stirred. And if you were lucky enough or mobile enough to be the first one in, God would heal you. But if not, sorry, tough luck. It must not be God's will for you. This was the mentality of those who were sitting around the pool. They thought that this was what was going on. Even if you don't take the last half of verse 3 and verse 4 into account, verse 7, in verse 7, the sick man answers Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And so you can obviously see that in this, mind, in this man's mind, when the pool is stirred, he needs to get into it. And so this was the mentality of those sitting around. There's nothing about this in the Old Testament. There's nothing comparable anywhere that God just set up a standing ordinance of a special place where you could go, where there would be like physical powers of an element or in the water or whatever. This seems to be not something that was actually instituted by the Lord and most likely wasn't even something that was efficacious. You might say, well, why were people there for decades then? Well, why do people follow around prosperity gospel preachers for decades? You see, the hope of something, the legend of something, the myth of something, often holds out enough power for us to keep believing something even when it's not happening. So these people were superstitious about this particular pool. And they thought this was the place to be to be healed. Jesus comes here and he sees all these people. And he singles out this one particular guy whom he's going to heal. Now I want you to notice the absence of this man's faith. Jesus says to him in verse 6, Do you want to be healed? The man's answer is, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. That shows you that this man was not even thinking about Jesus as a potential healer at this point. He didn't say, Sir, can you heal me? Yes, I would like to be healed. Jesus, son of David, as some of the others said, have mercy on me. This man just says, well, I can't because I have no one to put me into the pool. So this man isn't even thinking along the lines of Jesus, this man who's asking me whether or not I want to be healed. He's not even thinking along those lines. When Jesus says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. So the, the context of this miracle is superstition. The context of this miracle is the absence of faith. This man is not even 
we looked last week at the inadequacy of seeing Jesus basically as a performer of parlor tricks. The inadequacy of seeing Jesus basically as some kind of, I don't even know really what the word is, but you understand what I mean, dispenser, like some kind of vending machine. You go to him and you, you put in your request and then he dispenses whatever it is that you want. We saw last week the inadequacy of thinking of Jesus as that. This man is not even thinking of Jesus as that. He's literally not even thinking in the category of this man can heal me or might be able to heal me. So superstition, the absence of faith. Thirdly, the context of this miracle is the presence of specific causal sin. This man's sin, hear me carefully, this man's particular specific sin had caused this man's particular suffering. I'm not saying everybody's suffering is caused by particular specific sin, but this man's sin was. Look at verse 14. Jesus says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This seems to indicate that the cause in the first place of what was wrong with this guy was his sin. And Jesus is saying, look, you got a second chance, buddy. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin in general causes suffering in general. This world is just falling apart because of sin. Earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, all that kind of stuff isn't because of one particular person's sin or it's not necessarily because of even a nation's sin, though I reserve that God is free to judge a particular nation by sending something like that upon them. But we don't automatically draw a straight line between some kind of suffering occurs, therefore the people who suffered must have sinned. Cancer is in this world, whatever else, whatever other condition you might have or be facing or know someone who is, it's not necessarily because of your sin. It's not necessarily because you did something wrong that this is why you're suffering. But if Adam had not sinned, if sin had not been introduced into this world, we wouldn't have natural disasters, diseases, so on and so forth. And so in that sense, sin always causes suffering. Suffering is always caused by sin. But we know from Scripture that not all suffering is caused by any one specific sin. Turn with me for a moment to John chapter 9, which we'll get to at greater length in due time. But beginning at verse 1, listen here. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, their assumption was that there was always a specific sin which caused suffering. So if you're blind, well, either you're an exceptionally bad sinner or your parents must be. If you got physical problems, you're either a pretty bad sinner or your parents must be. Because unless you're an exceptional sinner, or unless your parents are exceptional sinners, you don't deal with this kind of stuff. That was their assumption. 
But what does Jesus say? It was not that this man sinned or his parents. And he goes on to give a different explanation, which we'll come to in due time. But I just want to show you that the scripture does not teach that all suffering is caused by specific sin. But this man seems to have been. See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. For this man, it seems to be the case that he was in the condition he was in because of his sin. So this man is superstitious. He's completely void of faith. And his suffering was actually caused by his sin. Consider then Jesus' action. He comes to this man. Let's say this man whose house is full of images of the saints. And this man's clutching a a rosary. And he's sick in his bed, hoping that by his superstitions, these saints on his shelves and this rosary in his hand, that he's going to be healed. And this man is there because of his sin. And this man doesn't even think that Jesus can heal him, and yet Jesus walks into a house like that and heals the man. Or somebody stuck in another religion with other idols, maybe not Christian idols, maybe Hindu idols, or some other idols, but there's this superstition all around this person. And they're suffering because of their particular sin. In other words, more than anyone else, they deserve it. Or as much, at least, as anyone else, they deserve it. They don't even think that Jesus can heal them. When people from the church go door-to-door in the neighborhood... They don't open the door. They don't answer the door because they don't want to hear about that. Jesus goes into a house like that. That's what's happening in this passage. You understand this guy is basically as far away from true biblical Christianity as you can be. He's superstitious. He has no faith whatsoever and his suffering is caused by his sin. But Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. This is mercy. Mercy is not doing for someone what they deserve. If I have an insurance policy, and then somebody else hits my car, and they're at fault, and then I make an insurance claim, and then insurance pays for my car to be fixed, they did not show me mercy. They gave me my due. That's not what mercy is. But if I didn't have an insurance policy and a hurricane came and blew down my house and some friends gathered around and banded together to rebuild, something like that would be more along the lines of mercy. Relieving you from something 
that they have no obligation to relieve you from. Jesus shows mercy to this man. 38 years this guy has been there. And he can't even beat the other blind, lame, and paralyzed into the water. The other invalids, as this translation calls them. He can't even win this cruel race. That superstition has foisted upon these vulnerable, despairing people. Jesus comes and says, get up. Take up your bed and walk. I'm not even 38 years old yet. This guy had been in this condition. Not only in this condition. Yes, yes, pardon me. In this condition for 38 years. He'd been in this condition longer than I've even been alive. So this would be like if I had a condition like this my whole life. And Jesus comes and heals me in an instant. Imagine. There must have been so much happiness, so much relief, so much joy at this event. He didn't even have a chance to ask Jesus his name. Look at verse 13. The man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So this guy stands up, takes up his mat. Everyone gathers around in amazement, and Jesus just kind of quietly slips away. But imagine the joy, the shock at this. But again, think the mercy of this. And then Jesus does more than just healing this guy. He gives him some sort of gospel invitation. Gospel confrontation. His question, do you want to be healed? It seems was taken by the guy in the first place as just a question of curiosity. Strange question, probably. Because if you sat next to somebody who had been an invalid for 38 years and said, just out of curiosity, do you want to be healed? It'd be a strange question to ask, because most people probably do. But it seems that the man took it that way. But after he had been healed, as he thought back on that question, it, it was an obvious invitation from Jesus. Never mind about the pool, look at me. I can heal you. And then look at what Jesus says to him later in the passage. See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Stop sinning. What Jesus says to this guy is basically, stop sinning. Flourishing is to be found not in sin but in obedience to me. Do what I tell you. 
If you don't want bad things to happen to you, stop sinning. Combine that with his earlier, do you want to be healed, which was an evident, look at me. This guy's giving, Jesus is giving this guy a simple, albeit a simple invitation, but a gospel invitation. Stop your sinning. Look at me instead. Do what I tell you, and you're going to flourish. In other words, believe me. Turn away from your sin. Look at me. This is gospel. You might say, wait, there's no gospel here. Nothing about the cross. Nothing about the empty tomb, etc. So let's consider for a moment, what is the gospel? We might say that there are two or more versions of the gospel. Before you take up stones to stone me, hear me out. Not versions that differ in substance, but versions that differ in detail. For the purposes of what I'm explaining to you this morning, let me just take two examples here. The fuller version goes something like this. In the beginning, God created man upright, able to sin, able not to sin, and gave him a law written upon his heart, which he expected all people everywhere to obey. And in addition to that law, he gave him a specific command, do not eat from that particular tree. That man acted as a covenantal representative for all mankind. And he failed. He broke God's law and plunged the whole human race into sin and misery. And generation after generation went by where we saw the deleterious effects of sin and misery. As the human race plunged further and further and further headlong into Darkness. But those who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus Christ has come into this world to act as a second Adam. To undo what was done by the first Adam. To obey the precepts of God's law for us who failed to do so. To receive in himself the penalty that God's law requires for our breaking of it. That second Adam lived perfectly as a substitute, died on the cross as a substitute. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, will be raised, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, in the same manner as he was raised, and will live with him forever in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. If you're cut to the heart and you ask, what should we do? Repent. Therefore, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The fuller version might go something like that. The condensed version goes something like this. Enter into a relationship with Jesus that consists of trust and obedience and he will take care of you. It's not different in substance. It's just different in detail. (laughs) 
This is the way that Jesus deals with many people. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, he doesn't tell everybody about the cross, about the resurrection, about the ascension. In fact, he sends out the disciples to preach the gospel. Look at Luke chapter 9 and verse 6. They departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. But now look at Luke chapter 9 and verses 43 to 45. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. But these guys have already been out preaching the gospel. What? So what gospel was it that they were preaching? Evidently not what I just said, the fuller version. Because they didn't even understand something so basic. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. When they went out, I think they were preaching something like this. The Christ is here. The one that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament is here. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Like the woman who goes into the city. Can this be the Christ? That prophesied kingdom is come. Salvation is here. He's going to crush the serpent's head. It's Jesus. It had to be. By process of elimination, something very simple like that. Because over and over and over in the Gospels, Jesus tells these guys, I'm going to die. And then after three days, I am going to be raised. And they're like, what? Or they're like, no, 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 this cannot be. And then Jesus dies and they're like, we thought that he was the one who was going to restore Jerusalem. You see how little they knew and yet they were preaching the gospel. And this is why I say, in one sense, there are two gospels. There's only one, really, one substance. But you can see how you can preach the gospel very, very simply or very, very fully. It's the same substance. Look to Jesus. If I was going down on a plane, I don't know how long it takes. Maybe you got three minutes. I don't know. Maybe you, maybe you got ten minutes. I don't know. I have no idea how long it takes. But I'm pretty sure I would just be Shouting out something pretty simple. <laughs> Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It'd be, pretty, it'd be pretty simple. If you were on a plane, if I was on a plane full of Roman Catholics, I'd be saying, Mary can't save you. The saints can't save you. Forget about St. Anthony. Jesus. Get your eyes on Jesus. If you're, on a, if you're on a plane full of Hindus, if you're on a plane full of Muslims, 
You might tailor your message slightly differently, but you're going to basically be saying, never mind that stuff, Jesus. And it's not a different gospel. You just may not have time to get into all the intricacies and all the fullness of the gospel. And so in this sense here, Jesus preaches the gospel to this man, extends a gospel invitation to this man. Do you want to be healed? Again, he interpreted it as just a question. But essentially, it was more like an invitation. Look at me. Never mind the pool. If you want to be healed, I could do it. He comes and talks to the guy later. Stop sinning. For that man to stop sinning because Jesus said stop sinning would have been an expression of repentance, no? This man who healed me, I believe him. And I trust him. He has made me well. And whatever he says, I'm doing. Very, very simple. But wouldn't this be something like the Old Testament saints too? I mean, the disciples up until the death and resurrection and ascension and Pentecost were basically themselves Old Testament saints. They didn't have gospel clarity. They didn't understand when Jesus said that he had to die and be raised. Most of the Old Testament saints wouldn't have had great clarity about the exact nature of the work of the Messiah. If you ask the average Old Testament saint to write an essay on the atonement, it probably wouldn't be up to scratch as compared with the average New Testament saints essay on the atonement. And yet they understood God by his mercy is providing someone who is going to come and rescue us. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's going to come soon. And we trust God to deliver us by means of the Christ. By means of the Messiah. Simple. Sinner. When I say sinner, I'm talking to all of you. (laughs) Sinner, you don't have to be a theologian par excellence before you come to Jesus. Just understand that in relationship to Jesus and right relationship to Jesus, everything is going to be okay. Let me be clear. Like John Piper, I also abominate the prosperity gospel. The gospel has not come to Jesus and your marriage is going to get better. The gospel has not come to Jesus and your financial situation is going to get better. The gospel has not come to Jesus and you're going to have the sort of abundant life that wicked, unregenerate people think is abundant life. You're going to be having pool parties. You're going to be having great events at your house, on your large patio. You're going to be eating the finest hors d'oeuvres and drinking the best wines. That's not the kind of abundant life that Jesus came to give you. So when I say just get in right relationship to Jesus and everything's going to be okay, I don't mean that. What I mean is you couldn't be in better hands. And that through all of the ups and downs of this life, 
up to and over the threshold of death, you couldn't be in better hands. You might not be a great theologian. You might not be very astute. You might not understand everything about the Bible, about the gospel. I might be losing you when I start talking about the atonement and federalism and covenantalism. And I might be losing you on a lot of those points. But if you understand this very simple thing, you need to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. You need to enter into the kind of relationship with Jesus where you depend on him. Or you trust Him. You trust what He says. You want to obey the things He's commanded. You believe that He can take you through to the other side safely. That's what God requires at bottom. God's not going to make us write an essay on the atonement to get into heaven. I told you guys that story, but it's so good, I'll just tell it again. Of that time when Paul Washer tells this story of when he went to eat with a bunch of men that he, as he puts it, you know, very, very strict men, very conservative men. And they went to eat, and their waiter came to the table, and as he says, he looked kind of like a hippie, their long hair and the bracelets and stuff, and he comes up to the table and goes, to Paul Washer, dude, you got a Bible. <laughs> and Paul Washer's like, yeah, I got a Bible. He's like, yeah, I got one of those too. <laughs> you know, and he told them, he told them this story of how God had, had been working in his life and how he'd become a Christian and, you know, how, um, you know, he was a Christian too and he left the table and, as Paul Washer puts it, he says the other guys, you could almost see their, their contempt, the sneering in their facial expressions. And Washer says that he said to those men, you know, God's done a real work in that man's life, in that young man's life. You know, from everything he told us, it seems that he really loves the Lord. You know, that he trusts Jesus and that he understands that he has to repent of his sin. He was living with his girlfriend. He's not living with his girlfriend anymore. You know, and then he said to those men, it's better to have it and not know what to call it than to know what to call it and not have it. You understand at the bottom is very, very simple. Go to Jesus. Never mind the pool or the saints or whatever idols you got set up on your shelves or in your heart. Never mind that stuff. Go to Jesus. Never mind the quality of your faith. Look at the object of your faith. Who do you believe? Who are you looking to? Stop sinning. Jesus says this, sin no more. Listen, get your eyes off of those things and onto Jesus. Stop sinning. That's a real simple way of saying repentance and faith, isn't it? 
And isn't that exactly what Jesus does to this man here? He just gives him a real simple gospel invitation. Stop sinning and get your eyes on me. What would be the reasonable and right response of this man to Jesus? Trust and obey. If you've been in that condition for 38 years and a man comes and says, get up, take up your bed and walk. Then he says to you, stop sinning. What would be the most reasonable response to that man? Whatever you say. But the man who was healed rejects Jesus. Look here, there's a two-stage betrayal. First of all, these the Jews again, man. They said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. All right, we're going to get into that a little bit more next week. This guy who has been in this condition for 38 years gets healed. And all these guys can think about is, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. That's got its own problems, and we're going to get more into that next week. But obviously, they're not pleased. Look at this guy's response. The man who healed me, that man, said to me, take up your bed and walk. Adam, where are you? I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I forbid you to eat from? The woman you gave me. You see where this comes from? The man who healed me, that man, told me to take out my bed. You don't really have a problem with me. you got a problem with the man who healed me. You see? First, this blame shifting. You might say, yeah, but you're not, you're not being charitable to this man. Maybe he was just testifying to the Lord's mercy to him. Maybe he was just spreading the word about Jesus and his messiahship. Well, let's look at what, go, what happens as this narrative goes on. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing, nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. That's the second stage right there and that Seals it. He knew, he knew that they weren't looking to find out his name and location so that they could go worship him too. This was a Herod-like request. When you find that king who's been born, come back and let me know. 
so that I can go worship him too. See, and the Magi, having been warned in a dream, departed by a different way. But this man goes straight back to Herod. Straight back to those who are upset about the Sabbath breaking. Oh, remember, remember you were upset with me about the mat and I told you it wasn't really me, it was the guy who healed me? Guess what? I found out his name. It's Jesus. See, this is just nothing but a two-stage betrayal. We see a portrait in the Gospels of a man so good, so just, so merciful, and so forth that you might wonder who could hate him. Who could hate the one who saw the crowds and had compassion on them? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Who could hate the one that fed them because they had nothing and they had been with him a long time? Who could hate the one who spent so much time healing the sick? Touching the lepers? Who could hate that one? Who could hate the one that told the truth about our condition? But not as one who would harm us, but as one who would heal us. Who told us we were sick, not so that he might take away all of our hope, but so that we might seek a remedy. Who could hate the one who says to us, that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and says to us also, I am the good shepherd. Who could hate the one that gives us not only a remedy, but the remedy of himself? We see the portrait of a good man. In fact, the God-man. The Word become flesh. The man born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that in him we might receive adoption as sons. We see a man so merciful that he would look at a superstitious guy waiting by a pool for the magical powers of that water to wash over him and make him well has no faith whatsoever and is in that condition because of his own sin and would nevertheless say to that man, get up, take up your bed and walk. We see that kind of man in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we might wonder who could hate him. But this narrative shows us an example of how unappreciated Jesus was in his time. Just one example. We'll look next week at another. We're going to look at many before we're out of the Gospel of John. And eventually, this man was crucified.
Jesus was unappreciated in his time. And has history since then been any different? Is it any different now? Why? Why has the world hated Jesus? Why has the world hated Christ's people? All Christ has ever done is come and say, I haven't come for the healthy, I've come for the sick. That's you. But I've come for you. All he's done is command us not only to love God, but to love our neighbors. Not only our neighbors, but our enemies. For what cause has Jesus been hated so often, so passionately throughout human history? For what cause is he hated even now? For what cause is he so unappreciated, scorned, mocked? Is it any different now, really? In our nation, we experience many of the mercies of God. We're not at the top of the list in terms of wealth, stability, crime rate, etc. But we're not at the bottom. We have the sun and the sand and the sea, which you might be tempted to take for granted. But remember that some people live in the sort of temperatures at which you freeze your Christmas ham. This past week, Dorian passed without any significant damage at a national level. And then flooded Martinique and caused a lot of damage in the Virgin Islands. It turned into, I think now it's a Category 4 hurricane, which, is, which has been threatening Florida and the southeast coast of the U.S. Barbados is a good place to live overall. We give our hat tip to God. Right? God is a Bajan. We dress in our Sunday best, come to church, and then live in wickedness for the other six and a half days. The mercy of God is unappreciated. The kindness of God to us as a nation is unappreciated. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Or in your family. Every family has problems. Yours may, may have had a lot. I'm not trying to gloss over the real hurt that happens in families. But there have been mercies. There have been mercies. Do you blame God for what has been wrong? Or do you see his mercy and what has gone right? 
And does His mercy compel you to come in obedience and trust? You see, even growing up in a pretty rough family, it shouldn't be like, well, I'm not coming to God because look at what He's done to my family. It should be like me and my family are sinners. But look at these mercies. And I may not be able to trust fully my siblings or my parents or my aunts and uncles. or But the kind of God who is merciful to sinners like us, yeah, I can trust Him. In your personal life, again, much may have been wrong and gone wrong up until now in your personal life. But much has been right. Do you, do you feel entitled to more? Like, why hasn't God done more for me? Oblivious to the fact that it is not Jesus, but sin that causes suffering. And Jesus is the cure for sin. In other words, it's not His problem that you got problems. It's because of Him that anything is going right for you at all. Because of His mercy. So turn away from that which, either in a general sense or in a specific sense, makes a mess of this world, makes a mess of your life, and turn to the One whose mercy makes things better than they could otherwise be and will one day make everything right. Don't do what this guy does in this passage here before us today. Don't fail to appreciate the mercy of God to you in Christ. Don't neglect the gospel invitation to turn away from your idols toward Jesus. As Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 says, which we read earlier in the service, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This passage is a sober warning that Jesus could come in sheer mercy to a man. And he could respond with rejection and betrayal of Jesus. It's irrational, it's unreasonable, it's sinful, it's wrong, but it happens. It happened in Jesus' day, it's happened throughout history, it happens even now. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. See the mercy of God in Christ to this man in John chapter 5. See the mercy of God in Christ to mankind from Genesis to Revelation. Hear the offer to you this morning of God's mercy to you in Christ. And let God's kindness lead you to repentance.